So we are continuing on in our summer series on a summer reformation. We're recognizing the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that was launched with Luther's posting of his 95 Theses on the church at Wittenberg in 1517. Uh, it was interesting, after 400, 1400 years of the church being established as the official religion of the Roman Empire, it had really started to drift into darkness. And it's into that darkness that the shining light of God's love comes bursting through and the Reformation was launched. And this summer we are looking at the five enduring principles that have come out of the Reformation. We call those the five solas. And so we've been looking through those five solas and just let me remind you, they're grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And for the next two weeks, I have the privilege of walking through sola fide, by faith alone. And so as we do that, I'm going to ask you to again turn to the epistle of Romans. In particular, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Those of you that are using the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 942. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And, and again, I'm going to ask those of you that are able to please stand with me as we give honor to God's word this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It reads as follows. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces patience. And patience produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May the Lord add a blessing to both the hearing and reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, let me just go ahead and make a personal confession. To select this passage of Scripture is, is a little bit like cheating for me. Uh, I think if, uh, if any of you know me, if, if you've been around me any, you know how important this passage of Scripture is for me. Uh, especially verse number 8. 
And my family knows very clearly, when I'm laid to rest, on my tombstone will be Romans 5 and 8. But God shows his love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we go through this topic of faith alone, I truly hope the Lord will speak to you as he's spoken to me about the importance of this doctrine. Now, the, the last two weeks, Pastor Sam has gone through the doctrine of grace alone. And indeed, if it were not for God's gracious disposition towards us, the other four solas would not have any foundation to stand upon. Sam has defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, last Sunday, he tweaked that definition just a little bit. And he tweaked it to begin expounding upon what are those riches that we have through what Christ has done for us. What are the riches that God has done that we benefit because of Christ's sacrifice? So he took the word riches out of his definition and he replaced it with the word righteousness. So the definition, instead of reading God's riches at Christ's expense, now reads God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And really, that's what we're here to talk about. It is the righteousness of Christ that justifies lost sinners before holy God. You know, it's that understanding that gave Martin Luther the peace that he needed in his life. Before understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther was in turmoil. He had no peace. How could a condemned sinner stand before a righteous, perfect, and holy God and not be condemned? That's the struggle that he had. That's a struggle that we all should have. And it's through understanding the doctrine of the justification by faith alone, that we should all come to an understanding of how born-again believers stand before a just God. Now, in understanding that doctrine, there are a couple things that should happen. First of all, it should drive you to a strong sense of humility. It should drive out all semblance of pride in your heart and in your mind. To be a prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Pride and Christian never go together as an identifier of those who have been redeemed. When you come to understand that you have peace with God, the work that was required to have peace with God and to recognize that you had absolutely nothing to do with it. 
when you come to that realization, it will drive you to your knees in humility. Because God showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is one of the most humbling, humbling principles that you can find in the Bible. Now, let me make this point of clarification. When we say by faith alone, it's really a shorthand way of saying justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Indeed, justification is the issue of the hour. How is it that fallen sinners are made right before a holy God whose wrath must be appeased? Such is our predicament. Will we comprehend what it truly took to make us justified before a holy God? It's a humbling experience. So, so that's one point that you really need to walk away with this morning. Justification by faith alone is a humbling doctrine. Now, the, the second challenge that we're gonna, we're gonna work through as we work through justification by faith alone is this little twist on words. Now, follow with me. We are justified by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. We are justified by faith alone, but it is not a faith that stands alone. That's the point that the Apostle James was trying to get over when he penned the epistle of James to the church in Jerusalem. And we're going to take a look in depth at that next week when we talk about the fact that our faith is not alone. But for right now, just keep in mind this. Genuine faith always produces works of righteousness. Genuine faith always produces works of righteousness. For Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, you cannot be a fruitless Christian. Christ said that you shall know them by the fruit they bear. A fruitless Christian is also a contradiction in terms. It's just as empty as a prideful Christian. To be born again is to have Jesus Christ not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. And both of these challenges flow out of the right understanding of the doctrine of faith alone. So as we walk through this, uh, this, faith, this doctrine of faith alone, there are three points that we're going to cover. We're going to cover the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What is it? What does it do? And why is it important? What is it? What does it do? Why is it important? Now, this morning, we're going to spend almost the entire sermon on the first point. What is it? 
That will lay the foundation for next week when we come back and talk about what does it do and why is it important. Now, as, as we look at building up to what Paul is wanting to present to us about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and we look at the book of Romans, what a masterful piece that really is. Romans is indeed the go-to book for when we want to look at the entire doctrine of what it takes to become justified before God. Romans can be broken into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 11 really cover the technical aspects of justification. Chapters 12 through 16 then starts to lay the groundwork for what happens in the life of the believer that has been justified by faith alone, but faith that is not alone. There's a natural outpouring of works of righteousness Works of justification that begin to take place in the life of the believer. Now, many of you are familiar with an evangelistic tool that comes out of the book of Romans that's found in chapters 1 through 11. It's called the Roman Road. Have you all heard of that? The Roman Road. And indeed, it's a very good tool to help people understand what their predicament is and what is the solution to that predicament. Roman, the Roman road starts off in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the next step of the Roman road says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our predicament. We all have fallen short. And because we have fallen short, we stand before a death sentence. But then Romans 10, 9 through 10, starts to talk about the glorious light of the gospel. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes. We're going to really talk a lot about what it means to believe. For with the heart one believes and is justified. We're going to talk a lot about what does it mean to be justified. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confess and is saved. And then it closes out in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that's glorious news. That is the heart of the gospel. If through genuine saving faith, you come to realize that your sins have been washed away, you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me, and he will. The Lord will save you, and he's saving this morning. There may be someone here that does not know Christ and the free pardon of their sins. And, and that door stands open this morning to any lost sinner that may be with us. You too can be saved. Just open your heart to the message of God's love. Now, as I think about 
how God works through justification in the heart of a believer. We're going to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith alone and what it is. What is it? Now, as, as I do so, let me, let me just confess, this, this can be one of those topics that can be a little bit dry. Okay? So hang in there with me as we kind of step through it and understand the, the richness of what God has given to us in justification. Let me set the stage by saying, first of all, in the book of Romans, Paul uses uh, to develop and, and uses language to develop the, the doctrine of faith alone, taken directly from the understanding of the rule of law. The rule of law. And throughout these first 11 chapters, Paul is, is presenting and dealing with the legal standing of condemned sinners. The legal standing of condemned sinners. He's especially dealing with the futile efforts of fallen men to become right before the ultimate judge of the universe, God Almighty. So imagine for me the following scene. It's a, a courtroom scene. It's a scene in which every man Every woman, every boy and girl who has ever lived, who is living right now, or whoever will live, each and every one of us will experience this event. That's what Paul declares in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Romans 14, 10 through 12, everyone is appointed a time to stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. There's no one that will escape this event. You will stand before God alone on your own, but you won't be alone. Every act, every deed, every dot that you've ever had will be there with you. Almighty God will be there, and he will be there in all of the perfection that he is. Holy God, in all that he is, all of his purity, all of his might, all of his knowledge, all of his love, all of his holiness, and all of his justice will be there with you. And folks, this holy God is angry with fallen sinners. He is angry with fallen sinners. This God, this holy and righteous and loving God, will not tolerate sin, unredeemed sin in his presence. He just will not tolerate it. Now, who else will be in that courtroom? Now, folks, it won't surprise me that Satan will be there as well. You know, after all, Scripture teaches us in Revelations 12.10 that Satan is the accuser 
of the saints. And, and he accuses us day and night before God. Day and night, Satan and all of his evil hatred towards God and everything that God is trying to do as good, Satan is up there just accusing us, condemned, condemned, condemned. That's who's standing against us in the courtroom before us this morning. And you know, Satan knows the Bible. Satan knows that God has decreed that the wages of sin is death. He knows that all have fallen short and should rightly be cast into eternal separation from God into everlasting torment. And he demands that God carries out the justice that he's written in his law. And really that is the question. Why should God not pass a sentence of condemnation upon us? And that is what the, just, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is all about. It is the only hope for people who have sinned against God and have fallen short of his standards. Martin Luther called the doctrine of the justification by faith alone, he said that it was the hinge pin upon which the entire gospel stands or falls. Luther said, you get this wrong, the church falls. You get justification by faith alone wrong, the gospel falls. You get justification by faith along wrong, and everything that we've tried to put together falls. It's a critically important doctrine to understand. Last Sunday, Pastor Sam talked about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, the propitiation for our sin. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of holy God so that we can stand as redeemed sinners before God. Jesus covers us with his blood, which represents his righteousness. His righteousness becomes ours. That's what the Bible calls and speaks to when you, we use this word imputation. We are declared righteous, not because of, because of our works, but through the works of another. It is an alien justification. It's an alien righteousness. It is a source, it comes from a source that does not originate inside each of us. It is a righteousness that has been given to us. It has been imputed to us, to our account. It's important to understand that we are still sinners, sinners, but in the eyes of God, we now appear as righteous. Still sinners, but yet in God's eyes, we have been justified. Luther would use a Latin phrase to describe this. The phrase is sinu ustus ec peccator. Simu ustus et peccator. 
And here's what it means. It means, at the same time, just and sinner. At the same time, just and sinner. One of my favorite Christian theologians, who's just an outstanding philosopher in his own rights, is R.C. Sproul. Here's what R.C. has to say about Luther's phrase, simu ustes ek peccator. R.C. says, and so with this formula, Luther was saying, in our justification, we are one and the same time righteous or just and sinners. He was saying from one perspective, in one sense, we are just. In another sense, from a different perspective, we are sinners. And how he defines that is simple. In and of ourselves, under the analysis of God's scrutiny, we still have sin. We are still sinners. But by imputation and by faith in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is now transferred to our account, then we are considered just or righteous. This is the very heart of the gospel. And so there you have it. That is the justification by faith alone. It means that because of what only Jesus Christ could do, we, we who are incapable of meeting the righteous requirement of holy God have been declared right in his sight. If that's what Paul means when he says, but while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. We were sinners before justification, and we're sinners now. The doctrine of the justification of the believer is at the heart of the gospel, for it presents how we are made acceptable before a perfect God. If one desires to understand the gospel message of Christ, you must understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. To misunderstand the doctrine of justification by faith alone is to rip the heart out of the gospel message. We have a legal problem going on, and that's what's being addressed in this doctrine in this courtroom. God does so by a means of a legal declaration of our status based on the works of someone who has perfectly kept all of his requirements of perfection. So in that courtroom with us is Jesus Christ. He is our great intercessor who on our behalf has satisfied the requirements of the law. Uh, it is the righteousness of Christ again that has been imputed to us. It's very important that we understand this transaction. God's declaration of us as righteous does not mean that we have become inwardly righteous. We have not become inwardly righteous. Again, at the same time, we are just and sinner. What God has done, he has declared the 
guilty, innocent. The sinner has been acquitted of all charges brought against him. Now that's glorious news. Jesus Christ stands in the court of holy God and says, she is redeemed. I have paid the price for all of her sins with my blood. Now, to the rest of the sinners who come to trial and who have not been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, Jesus will proclaim, I never knew them. The unredeemed sinner will have to mount their defense on their own based on their own works. Jesus, Jesus will remain silent as they present their defense. I just would want to be in that position to stand before holy God and say, God, look what I've done. I've healed the, the sick. I've fed the hungry. I've clothed the naked. I've been to the prison. I built the church. I did this. I did that. And Jesus says, I never knew them. And for the rest of their defense, he's silent. In the act of imputing the righteousness of Christ to the account of the sinner, God is not changing the person per se, but rather is making a legal declaration that the payment for the person's sin has been made. The sinner is now free of the charge of being indebted to God. The sinner's status before the law has changed. Sufficient evidence has been presented to prove the declaration that the sinner is redeemed. The judge considers the facts, the evidence of the case, and he pronounces the sinner righteous in his sight. What is the evidence that is presented to God? It is the righteousness of Christ. And what God does is God uses the instrument of faith to transfer the righteousness of Christ to our account. He uses the instrument of faith to transfer the righteousness of Christ to our account. And that, that's where this, this doctrine of, of saving faith may get to be a bit confusing. But just hang in there with me for a minute. We must have faith, but faith itself is not the righteousness that justifies us. Possessing saving faith is required by God, but even our faith is imperfect. So it cannot be the basis of our justification. If it were, then our justification will be based on a work, something that we do. It would turn faith into a work, and God would not have that. That's the point that Paul is stressing so much in Romans. Justification is not based on any human effort or any human action. 
And it's important that we understand God uses saving faith as the means of transferring the righteousness of Christ, Christ alone, to our account. That is a critical aspect to understand about the nature of saving faith. It may help me to talk a little bit about what faith is not so that we can get closer to understanding what genuine saving faith is. Here is what faith is not. Faith is not some mystical force that we conjure up to get what we want when we want it. That's not faith. Faith is not convincing ourselves that if we say something over and over again, even with a heartfelt conviction that God is obligated to do or to give us what we are demanding. That's not faith. Faith is not walking blindly ahead in spite of all the evidence presented before us that declares what we want to believe is simply not faith. Faith is not something you proclaim based on a passage of Scripture taken out of context that has more to do about getting what you want than bringing God glory. It's, it's so sad. Beloved, it is just so sad that the health and wealth gospel is so entrenched today. It has seduced far too many believers into believing that they can get anything they want when they want. What they're actually doing is justifying their self-centered desires. That's not justification by faith alone. That's justification by foolishness alone. It's a shame and a sham to reduce the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone into people buying into the lie of name it and claim it. We have to regain what the Bible says about what genuine faith is. Now, the Bible defines genuine saving faith in many different ways, in many different places, I should say. And one of the places that I go to when I want to think about uh, what the Bible says about genuine saving faith is one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's just look at that verse just a little bit, because sometimes it's easy to get that thing out of whack as well. Let's look at the word assurance. So assurance is a very interesting word. Assurance is a type of guarantee. It's a guarantee that is backed by God. Assurance is a guarantee that comes directly from God to the believer. Because God backs this guarantee, we have absolute certainty that it is legitimate. Our faith is guaranteed and it's backed by God. We have assurance. The phrase hope for speaks to the fact that we are actively waiting for God to bring about through faith what he has promised that he will do. And this is a hope that is free of any level of doubt. 
It is a hope that stands on the rock, solid assurance that comes from God himself as the Lord of the universe. The word conviction refers to the inner confirmation of the mind that results from believing what God has promised. It is an internal persuasion that comes from God due to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It understands that what God has said is true. It comes from an internal persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word seen is technically means to see something physically with spiritual results. To see something physically with our eyes that has spiritual results. That is taking what a person has said in the physical into the non-physical and then to respond in an appropriate manner. Not seen means that though we have yet to see into the future, especially the events that one day will take place in heaven, we have full confidence that it will transpire exactly the way God has promised. So when we stand before the seat of God, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we will hear the wonderful words of Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. So faith in is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of now things not seen. Now, to grab hold of what I'm saying, uh, faith deals with something that has happened in the past. It has a present reality that has a future implication. God has done something in the past in which the believer right now finds its ultimate fulfillment in the future. And so with that in mind, I have a working definition of Hebrews 11.1 1 that I want to leave with you. Uh, in the Bible, having saving faith is to believe that God will do what he has said he will do as evidenced by what he has already done and is currently doing. In the Bible, having faith is to believe that God will do what he has said he will do as evidenced by what he has already done and is currently doing. What has God done? He has provided a solution to our sin problem. What is God doing? He is extending an invitation to the lost sinner to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And what will God do? He will pronounce you as righteous when you stand before him on judgment day. Past, present, future. And so saving faith is understanding that all of that has been transferred to the account of the lost sinner. Now, how do we obtain this access into faith? Well, there's two things that are very important that I need to leave with you as we get ready to close this portion of the sermon this morning. Here, here are two things I want to leave with you as we think about how do we now have that peace 
that Paul talks about in Romans 5.1. And then Romans 5.2 says that we have obtained by faith the access into this grace in which we stand. How does that actually happen in this courtroom situation? Well, first of all, the obedience of Christ is credited to us. That results in God seeing us as just. It's not because of our own efforts. It's because of what Christ has done. And until we see the Lord face to face, we will continue to fail, to continue to sin. But salvation is a gift. And all of the benefits that flow out of it, including our saving grace, the saving grace that we receive from God is now ours forever, once for all. The perfect obedience of Christ has been transferred to our account. Now, here's the second thing that happens. Our sin is taken away from us. So not only does Christ, God credit the righteousness of Christ to us, he also takes away from us our sins. That's what Paul meant when he wrote 2 Corinthians 5.21. You ought to underline this in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. That is the twofold transaction that happens in justification. The righteousness of Christ is put on us. The sin that we rightly own is taken away from us. That's what happens in justification. And if Christ is, and God wants us to have the faith to believe. Now, next week, I want to talk about what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? We need to understand what true belief is all about. There's three aspects of what it means to truly believe. I'm not going to tell you this morning. You got to come back next week to hear that. But it's important that we understand the components of what it means to believe. But for this morning, let me just leave you with this. In the Bible, having faith is to believe that God will do what he has said he will do. as evidenced by the fact that he has already done what he has already done and is currently doing. So what has God done? He's provided a solution to our sin problem. But what is he doing right now? God is extending an invitation to the lost to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What will God do? God will pronounce us as righteous when we stand before that judgment seat and we give that account of our lives Jesus would say, he is redeemed. He's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Come on in and enjoy the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. Aren't you looking forward to hearing those words pronounced? I know that I am. I know that's the rock solid assurance that I stand upon. Not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, as we close this morning,
And Lord, as we, we think about who you are, Father, as we think about what you have done, great, Lord, is our faithfulness. Great, Lord, is the fact that we can trust and depend on you. We can trust, Lord, in what you said that you will do. We can trust, Lord, that one day we will stand before your presence as redeemed sinners who have been justified by faith, by faith alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.